Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Working is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash working. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. If you love the working podcast, listen longer with Slate+. Plus. Members get bonus segments and interview transcripts from the show. Learn more and start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. Hello and welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Adam Davidson. Uh, Before we start, I do want to issue a warning. This podcast might not be best for sensitive listeners, for children. It's one of my favorite podcasts, actually, but it uh, is with a person who deals professionally with physical and sexual abuse of children. We don't go into a lot of detail, but we certainly make reference to some pretty upsetting events. What's your name and what do you do for a living? I'm Erica Hurley and I'm a detective with the Portland Police Bureau Child Abuse Team. All right. I'm just going to say you, you're not showing any obvious being a detective. Do you have uh... – uh, Well, I have a badge and a gun on. It's just underneath the jacket so you can't see it. <laughs> but no, we do plain clothes here because most of our stuff is done with interviews and going out to schools and talking to kids and doing those things. We find most of that is done better in plain clothes so that we don't have an obvious police presence when we do stuff. Got you. So um, – I know there's a lot to your job, but uh, with this podcast, we we try to start with just what a typical day is like. Can you just talk about what a day is like? I know today's a very weird day. Yes. Um, so actually, I have to tell you that one of the things I like about this job is there is no typical day. So some days I come in and literally write reports all day because that's what I've done the days before. But then there's other days that you walk in at 6 a.m. when I start my job, and by 6.15, I'm headed to the hospital because we have a child that's been broken by somebody and we need to deal with it. Um, other days I've been here since 11 o'clock the night before because someone called to say there was a child in the hospital and we went to deal with that, and I, was, I spent the night uh, working. So there really is no basic day for me. Every day that I walk in is different, which keeps me on my toes and I actually kind of enjoy. Um, But there's not typical in this job. So can you tell me about today? 
So, well, today is a totally non-typical day because um, the president of the United States is in town. And so we have been detailed to do a protection detail for him, which has nothing to do with child abuse. Um, But I am a police officer first and foremost and a detective second. Uh, I've been a police officer for over 20 years. So I've done this job for a long time. Um, And so they still have us put on a vest and a badge and and go out and do real police work on occasion as well. And this will not air until the president has long since left. So um, I'm much more interested in your regular job. But what does being a presidential detail mean? It's just security, right? So it's all about closing down streets and and securing the buildings that he will be going to so that um, no one gets in that isn't supposed to be there. Uh, And just making sure, obviously, there's always protests or there's other people that that, want to make their word known while we're out there. We make sure that they have the ability to do that, but not too close to the president. So have you been or I guess your superiors have been coordinating with the Secret Service. And of course. Yes. Yeah, for quite some time, yeah. yeah. Is this exciting or is it a bummer, this this kind of day? I actually don't like this kind of day. Um, I have a huge number of cases that need to be worked, and this just took two days away because he's spending the night, so it's today and tomorrow. Um, I will spend two days not working the cases that need to be done. And um, like or dislike the president doesn't matter. I have children that are my victims, and they're more important. And so unfortunately this takes away from that. So instead of going through a typical day, why don't could we go through a typical case? I'm imagining sure. each case is different, but obviously we don't want any actual names. But but just either think of a specific case or just walk us through how, how you learn about a case and what the next steps will be. So cases come to us in different manners, but um, I'll take you through a case that I did several years ago. And so – First, to lay it out, we do several kinds of cases. So I do child abuse that is physical abuse. I also do sexual abuse cases. So there's um, each of those are handled, obviously, in a different way. Um, we'll start out with a physical abuse case. So those usually come in to us from um, Department of Human Services or Child Welfare, or they will come in from a, a street 911 call. A police officer will go to the scene and find a child that's been injured or have a welfare check on a child and find a child injured. Um, but most commonly, they come in from the hospitals. So a child may go in for a well check checkup child check, and the doctor looks at him and says, oh, these are not bruises that should be on this child, or this child has some issues now that we have some concerns about internal injuries, and then they call us. Um, We work very closely with with what's called CARES Northwest, which is a group of doctors and um, psychologists and child interviewers that do the, the... doctor part of the whole thing. So we'll meet a, a child abuse doctor at the at the hospital, and they'll tell us basically what they've found, right? And just so I understand, the, when you say a child abuse doctor, that there are specific doctors who yes. focus on or are trained in this area? Correct. They are trained very specifically for child abuse, so they do both sexual and physical abuse. And they can look at a bruise and say, this is more likely than not a child abuse case versus the child fell and this is a bruise. Some of those are easy, right? The case I'll talk about it is two-month-old babies. They shouldn't have bruises. Two-month-old babies don't get bruises. And if they do, there should be a very easy um, explanation for it. You know what? I didn't realize that the child's hand was there when I closed the door or something that it has an, an easy explanation of, of accidental that would have caused a bruise because babies don't get bruises, right? So um, in this particular case I'll talk about, we have twin two-month-old babies. Mom brought uh, the first two-month-old into the hospital because she was having some breathing issues um, and uh, – There was obviously a whole lot of other issues wrong, but when mom initially brought the child in, she said breathing issues. Um, In this particular case, we got very lucky because the doctor that was not a child abuse doctor that first saw the child, but that was very um, 
just hands on. He took a look at the kid, but took a look at the kid's records and realized the child had a twin sister. So he immediately said to mom, hey, where's that twin at? And mom said, well, home with dad. Why don't you have uh, him bring that one in too, just so we can do a baby check on, make sure everybody's okay. Um, When the first two-month-old came in, um, she was having some breathing issues, but she also had some huge sores around her mouth. She had some um, uh, obvious feeding issues. Um, There's two little... And I, I'm not the doctor, so I'll call him wrong, but I think it's called a phallium, something like that. Anyway, there's a little thing that keeps your upper lip hooked to your um, gums, and then there's something that keeps your tongue hooked down to the bottom of your mouth. Those in child abuse cases are many times torn off because of the way people do with their children. Both of those were torn on these girls. So You mean by hitting them or by no actually these for this particular case force feeding children so when they try to put things in their mouth or they try to make them be quiet or they do things with their mouth in order to try to stop them from doing whatever they want um they'll tear those because they're pretty delicate they're babies so um in this particular case those were both torn on these on these baby girls so again another indication of child abuse one of the things that we do with a physical abuse case is we immediately take that child and do um, a skeletal is what they're called which is just an x-ray of the entire baby right so can we find any broken bones we do a ct scan on their head to make sure that we don't have any brain injuries those are things that are automatically done on a child that comes in with suspicious injuries so um, skeletals were done on both of the little children um, there were 19 broken bones between the two two-month-old infants. So from there, um, we get called, obviously, because now there's no question this is child abuse. There's no question that we have a criminal case here. Um, so my partner and I go to the hospital. We, we meet with mom and dad. We get a story from mom and dad. What happened? We, you know, Tell us about a typical day in the child's life. Tell us how you care for these children and so forth. From there, we end up with suspects, usually. somebody Somebody's story doesn't add up. Right? And can I... I'm just I want to slow this down because it's so it's, it really is it, it is it's upsetting but very fascinating. Can you just give me a sense of your mindset going into that interview setting? I mean, you, you you're dealing with a mother who either mm-hmm. is doing a horrible horrible thing mm-hmm. or she is a victim of a horrible horrible thing, and right. and 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 I don't know how emotionally psychologically like how how, how do you walk into that room? Well, I think. Um I think I've done it for long enough that you go into it looking for the truth of it, right? Um, I try never to go into a case making an assumption. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, it's always the boyfriend or it's always the dad, right? Not true. Just not true at all. And so if you go in there with this thought process of, I think it's this person of the people that had access to this child, um, you may get surprised and you may ruin your case because now you've given information you shouldn't have or you didn't ask the right questions, right? So I really walk in trying to just not have any assumptions about what happened. Um, Do we know it's child abuse? Absolutely. You cannot do to the children what has happened by an accident. A fall is not going to create these these injuries and, and not on both children. And I guess, I mean, you do know this mom, she's not protecting this child in some way. Maybe she's not being, I mean, we'll get into the details, but maybe she's not, maybe she's a victim too. I would have guessed that comes up. But um, yeah, absolutely. So we go in and get a, a basic story is what we start with, right? Tell us about the child and what happened and why you're here today and those things. And usually the lies come out fairly quickly. Um, a lot of times they try to minimize what actually happened. So they'll admit to the fact that something happened to the child, but they don't tell you the whole story. They'll try to explain it away as an accident or they'll try to minimize it. Yes, I shook the child, but I didn't shake him very hard. Okay, but let's talk about that. And so that then is the... Can you walk me through what you literally say? Like when you walk through the door, this is someone who 
Yeah, so we'll walk through the door. And, and um, the first thing we talk about when we walk through the door, which this is true, by law, any child that comes in with suspicious injuries has to be investigated by the police, by Oregon state law. There's no question there. So um, the first thing we do is come in and say, we're not accusing anybody of anything. We are here to investigate, to find out what happened to your child. Uh, they, it's law mandated that we're here. It doesn't have anything to do with how you presented or who you are or any of the things that are specific to this case. We We... Uh, investigate all of them. Some turn out to be accidents, and that's okay too. But we're here just to find the truth about what happened so that we understand. And that's what we explain. Um, and then we're able to go in and talk to them. We try to interview mom and dad separately, obviously. And this is in the hospital, or have yes. you brought... Yeah. No, we do this in the hospital. And I'm imagining you're getting a range of emotional reactions from them. Yes, absolutely. Um, some are, uh, you know, obviously very upset, tearful, those kinds of things. And, and some are pretty stoic. It really just depends on the person. And some are pretty mad at you. Yeah, occasionally, but not very often. Um, most of the time, uh, things like this uh, are caused by parents, right? Or we know it'll be a caregiver. In, in, For instance, we had one a couple of weeks ago that we knew it was the babysitter because mom and dad were at work when the child was injured. There's no question mom and dad didn't do it, right? So then you walk in and you get a history from them, and, and, and we know it's the daycare provider that we're looking at. So um, most of the time, anger isn't the issue. Most of the time, they want to cooperate because they want to convince us they didn't do what has happened to this child, right? Um, when they get angry first, that obviously doesn't look good for them, I think is their theory, and they don't usually start off that way. Um, so we go through the interview of what happened, getting a history of the child and how old they are and, and if they've had medical issues already, those kinds of things. A lot of times what you learn is this baby cries all the time. This baby won't quit crying. I cannot get this baby to do X, Y, or Z, right? And sometimes it's because they're... Uh, parents that have never had a child before and so they don't understand that a two-month-old child cannot be expected to do some of the things they want them to do. Um, sometimes it's an 18-year-old kid really that has just had a baby that has no idea how to care for that child and so when the child cries and they shake that baby it's just a frustration because they don't know what to do um, and they didn't realize that what they will do is cause brain damage when they shake that child. So there's a wide range of people and, and why they do these things. Um, Sometimes, honestly, they're just vicious people, and, and they just are. There's evil in the world, and, and we see it every day. Um, and sometimes people are just mean. Um, and I'd imagine some of these people are not too far out of being child abuse victims themselves. That's correct. Some are, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's I don't think it's an issue of necessarily child abuse. Uh, for instance, you know, a shaken baby, very rarely the parents were shaken children, right? But did they grow up in a, in a lifestyle that allowed them to deal with frustration? Absolutely not. Were they taught by their parents how to deal with children and frustrations and, and um, anger issues? Absolutely not. I mean, most of them just aren't. I, you're, you are a parent. I think we talked about that. I have two children as well. And I know how frustrating it is when that baby just will not quit crying. And you don't know what to do because you want to help. You want that baby to be okay. It's not that you're angry with the child. It's that I want to help. I'm mom. I'm trying to get you to not cry, and I don't get it, right? So <clears throat> I understand that frustration piece, and sometimes that just goes too far. And so instead of laying that baby down and walking away, they shake that child or they throw that child or they do something that breaks that child. Um, and so it's not a... They didn't walk in that room saying, what can I do to that kid today? They walked in that room and said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do today. And since I've never learned how to deal with anger in any way, I don't also know how to deal with the anger that I get or the frustration that I get when my child doesn't do what I want, if that makes sense. Um, most physical abuse cases, in my opinion, and I say this most because this is not all, most are 
frustration and lack of parenting ability. Um, they just they don't know how to control that frustration, and they don't know how to make that child do what they think that child is supposed to do. It's really hard to reason with a baby. <laughs> it's it's hard to reason with a toddler, right? And so, unfortunately, <clears throat> they move to physical acts instead of um, trying to figure it out another way to deal with it. And and you know, when you lack of sleep and all the other things, and then you uh, know, a lot of ours have drug issues and those kinds of things. So you add all of that piece in, um, and unfortunately, the children end up being the ones hurt out of the process. This episode of Working is sponsored by Citrix Go to Meeting. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. You have to send out invitations, find a time that works for everyone, reserve a conference room, and hope that no one has to work from home at the last minute. The solution, meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting. It's a smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses or the hassle of traffic. Turn on your webcam, and with HD quality, it is like being in the room. And you can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. I want you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. There's nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. So so you do the interview um, in, in this specific case or in other cases. Is there... Sometimes you're arresting the person right then and there? Yeah, there's a few times that we do do that. Um, We don't do that frequently, especially in um, physical child abuse cases because, one, the children in the hospital, they're safe, right? We'll kick the parent out or the child care provider out of the hospital so they can't have contact with the child. But these aren't people that we think are going to go find another kid to abuse that day. I mean that's that's just not the way it works, right? So um, sometimes we'll give them a few days while we go over the information we have, while we have more tests done on the child to find out if there's more injury that we're unaware of, and we'll find those things out before we actually arrest and charge. And will you go and get their other children out of the house? Oh, yes, absolutely. So we work incredibly closely with um, the district attorney's office in Multnomah County as well as the DHS, which is the Department of Human Services, and that's child welfare. Um, The minute we get these cases in, child welfare uh, comes out with us to the hospital, and then um, the district attorney's office gets a phone call from us to figure out how we want to deal with stuff. Um, Child welfare does what we call a safety plan immediately. So even before we know who our suspects are, so let's say child has walked in dangerous or uh, hurt, and we know that they were hurt by either mom or dad, right? But we don't know who the answer to that is, and they have five more kids at home. DHS will actually go out and create a safety plan for those kids. They'll put them in with a family member. They'll have a family member come to stay at the house to do the child care. Um, if, if absolutely necessary, they'll put them in foster care. That's pretty rare. Usually we can find another way to deal with it. But we do that the minute the case comes in before we've ever found out who has done anything because we can't, again, assume, right? If I assume that it's dad that has caused the injury but it's really mom and I leave those five kids with mom, I don't know that those children won't be hurt. So we do the safety plan immediately. Um, and then as the case evolves and we find out more information, it can be modified or changed as necessary. Got you. So um, so, so in that initial interview, you're recording a story for that, which is it. And, and then um, and maybe we can get back to the twins because I, I, I want to understand the next few days, what, what that process is like. So in this particular case, um, we went into an interview with uh, mom and dad separately, uh, interviewed both of them. We found out from mom that um, she was continually asking dad to be more gentle with the children. She felt he was too rough with the kids. She didn't step in and stop anything, but she knew that some of the things he was doing was probably not the best for the children. Um, he would get very frustrated when they cried. He would get very frustrated when they wouldn't sit still 
for him to dress or when they wouldn't take their bottles, he would um, put his fingers down their throat to open it up to put the bottle down. These are things mom talked about in her interview. So at this point in time, we really have a better suspect, right? Um, now, not to say that mom isn't part of that because she obviously allowed these things to happen without stepping in to do anything, um, but it gives us an idea of our interview that we will then have with dad. So we actually had interviewed dad first and gotten a basic story from him, which was um, fairly uh, benign, to be honest with you. Um, he did a lot of, I don't care for these kids. It's not my job. It's, you know, my the wife cares for them. I don't really deal with them. Um, and uh, a lot of, you know, I just don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. Um, and then we went in and talked to mom and find out that actually mom was a full-time student. Um, mom had some medical issues where she slept most of the time. And dad actually, who was not working, had primary care of the kids. So very different stories, right, from the two of them. Um, so we were able to go back in and have a, an additional interview with dad later uh, in the day. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll do a, pre- a preliminary interview, get our stories. And then it may be the next day before we go back and do another one because we'll find out more information from the doctors. We find out more test results. Um, and when I say test results, so I know these broken bones are in these children. What causes these broken bones, right? So give me a mechanism that has created that. We know the broken ribs are from squeezing usually. Um, they, they squeeze too hard. Okay, the, the, the head injuries, are they a shaken injury or are they hitting against something injury? These particular ones were a hitting injury. Um, the children both had broken knees and one broken arm. I think each had a broken arm. I can't remember all the injuries now. Um, and broken elbows. What causes those things? Um, well, bending them the wrong way causes those things. Um, pressure or leaning causes those things. So you find out from the doctor some of the mechanisms, and then you go back into interview with dad. Talk to us about how you dress the babies. Talk about how you feed the babies. Talk about how you do these different things. And so then what we get out of that is is the um, what really essentially is the confession. But what he talks about is laying the babies on a um, changing table with their legs hanging over the end and leaning on their knees to hold their legs still so that he can then dress them and he can't make they can't move right but now you have your knee injuries right because he's putting enough pressure that's how he breaks their knees so it's those kinds of things that you you need both pieces you need to know from the doctors what the injuries are and what could have caused them and then you go back to your suspect and have those conversations about how they care for these children and what kind of things and, and could this have occurred in our interviews we're very careful not to give them the information we have right if I say to you, both their knees are broken. How did that happen? You can make a story up for me to go along with that, right? So I don't want you to know what I know. I want you to just tell me what happened, and then I'll put that together with those injuries. Um, So in the end, in this particular case, we had a full confession from dad that really explained all of the injuries of the children. Um, And the reality was he... um, the kids were loud and noisy and messy, and they didn't do what he was told, and they didn't lay still when he wanted them to lay still, and he didn't eat at the times he wanted them to eat. And he was a very organized, very um, uh, everything-in-its-right-place kind of OCD guy, and these babies were not fitting into that, and, and that wasn't his plan. And I think they were his first children, although he was uh, well into his 30s. He wasn't a young man. Um, they were – I think he had an, this idyllic, idyllic – idea, right? Very um, Pollyanna of we're going to have these babies and this is what they're going to do and it's going to be the perfect little life. And that didn't work out. Those children didn't fit into what he had expected, which is where the abuse occurred. In this particular case, both children were taken away from both parents because the mother as well failed to um, protect these children. Um, And he was sent to jail. um, And the children have since been adopted out and they actually have a really wonderful family now. Wow. Um, Do you know if, is it 
Do we know yet if there's permanent damage from these injuries? We don't know that, and we won't. A lot of times things with head injuries and stuff, you know, um, and then the doctors are very uh, cautious about adding that to what happens. So you have a shaken baby who, you know, have brain has brain injury um, or uh, the child's hit their head, they have brain injury. That child may read late. Is it because of the brain injury? Eh, you can't really say absolutely, right? Maybe this child would have had reading issues regardless. So it's hard to say that, although sometimes you can see it. Um, they don't walk on time or they don't have they, they know the brain injury occurred in a certain area, and then um, they don't they don't walk right or they don't talk the way they should, and they can kind of contribute that back. But a lot of times we we don't know. Yes, the children continue to have issues, but can we guarantee that that's what they were from? Not usually. And and what is it like when when the children are are verbal when they're able to talk to you about? about sure. the physical abuse they've suffered? I don't interview children myself. We take them to Cares Northwest, and they go to actually a child um, forensic interviewer who is trained specifically to talk to kids. They'll see a doctor there, so they'll see the physical piece as well, but then they'll take them into an interview room and give them crackers and coloring books, and, and it's really a um, something that's meant to be very non-stressful for the kids to talk about. The interesting thing to me when I... Um, go into those is, one, these children love their parents. They These parents do horrific things to them, but they still love their parents, which is always interesting to me because um, as adults, if somebody was that mean to us, we wouldn't like them, right? Um, but kids don't think that way. And the other interesting part is many times there's no emotion for these kids when they talk about it. It is their life. It's their daily life. And so they don't really think about it as being this horrific event. Did they hit you? Well, yeah, but they hit me all the time, right? Yeah, I had a broken bone and mom didn't take me into the hospital because, and I kept telling her it hurt, but you know, I hurt all the time because I get hit or because these things happen. And so it's very interesting to just see the difference in how how horrific we think it is when because it's just such their daily life, they don't think about it that way or, or they, they put it out with, with really a lot less emotion than you'd expect. You'd expect a lot of tears and crying and, and oh, my gosh. And, and it, it really isn't. They'll color their coloring books and just talk about the fact that they get abused without a lot of emotion to it. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's something I've learned as an interviewer. I've interviewed, uh, you know, drug addicts, prostitutes, war criminals in Iraq. And um, a lot, to my surprise, a lot of people, it's just their life. And they just talk about it. It's not, it's shocking to me. It's not shocking to them. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, how many cases do you have in a week, a month, a year? I usually hold approximately 20 to 22 cases at any given time. So, um, you know, it's... We have times of year that are busier than other times. Interestingly enough, holidays seem to be busy. Um, when the kids go back to school in September, it's very busy because a lot of the bruises and the issues that our, our parents don't talk about in the summertime, teachers see as soon as they hit school in September. So that's usually a busy time for us. Um, one of the things that I think is um, wrong in our business is we have uh, 12 full-time detectives here with the Portland Police Bureau, and we do Portland and Gresham. So we don't do just Portland, um, but we do Portland and Gresham. 12 full-time detectives, and we only do major crimes. So if you spank your kid and bruise them, I'm not going to come interview you. I'm not going to come and that's, I'm not going to get that case assigned. Um, <clears throat> anything that there isn't a major injury that a felony is involved in, I don't, I don't do an investigation on. DHS will take care of that on their own. That's disturbing, right? It's disturbing the number of cases we don't investigate, the number of cases that we just can't because we are so busy. Now we, co- we carry a higher caseload than homicide or assault or any of the other ones, much higher. So <clears throat> The fact that we have the caseload that we have and that we give away so much cases is sometimes disturbing. You know, you read all of these cases that come through the DHS and say, 
okay, we can take this one, but we can't take those 10. Um, and that's that's disturbing because sometimes if we could get on the front end of those cases, maybe they don't end up in our lap later uh, for the more severe injuries. But we just don't have the manpower or the finances to do that. Wow. Um, can you give me just a sense of, of physical abuse cases? What are, What is the range? Are they mostly persistent, ongoing, um, or no, we ne- we rarely get involved in those because, again, they, they don't rise to our level. There's no broken bones. If a child is not admitted to the hospital, we don't get involved usually uh, because, again, they're not a they, the cri- the case doesn't rise to our level. DHS will get involved. They'll go out. They'll talk about parenting classes. They'll talk about other things. Um, but unless it's uh, frequent abuse to a level that the DHS feels these kids need to be taken away to investigate, occasionally we'll take them only because of the frequency of abuse. But if, if they don't have broken bones and aren't hospitalized um, for pretty severe stuff, we don't take those cases at all. So if I saw someone in downtown Brooklyn just wailing on their kid with a belt, but it wasn't causing a emergent event where they have to go to hospital, and I called the police, they'd you. Police would come. The police would come, and, 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 and absolutely a police report would be taken. DHS would then get involved. If the bruising was to the extent that it caused um, significant pain and that child you know, couldn't walk from the bruising, those kinds of things, then we would get involved. Um, if you cause bruises on that kid that aren't significant and it hasn't caused them any um, impairment, no, we won't get involved. Now, having said that, um, all of these cases are looked at individually. For instance, if you have a baby that has bruises, I'm getting involved because – there's no reason, there's no excuse for, and, and that's probably going to escalate, right? Um, you are allowed to discipline your children. You can spank your children. Um, excessive discipline is not a crime, right? So um, until it rises to really excessive discipline, if that makes sense. So those are all really gray areas. We try to look at all of them the best that we can and take as many as we can, um, but we can't take all those cases. But we do don't let anybody think we don't look at all of them because we do. And we do make sure that all of them get a resource, um, DHS, parenting classes, those kinds of things. Family law can get involved. They just don't necessarily rise to a criminal case that a detective would get assigned on. Although, again, infants, um, little kids that shouldn't have bruises, we obviously get involved in those. Uh, so I, I feel like I've been avoiding this, but can we talk about sexual abuse cases? That um, What would – walk me through that, and I assume – there's, there's family sexual abuse and then there's stranger sexual right. abuse. Uh, and so we take pretty much all sex abuse cases, okay? So that's kind of the difference between physical and, and sexual abuse cases. Um, I can't really think of a sexual abuse case that we would not take on. Um, we have two different kinds, as you discussed. We have stranger sexual abuse and we have um, fam- familial sexual abuse. The kidnapped child that gets sexually abused is really very rare. Um, not to say it doesn't happen. I've actually had a few cases, but they are fairly rare. Um, although that's, you know, everybody has the stranger danger idea. Um, it doesn't happen very often statistically. Um, familial is incredibly uh, common. Uh, and the interesting part about the familial is usually the family all knows. So it's uncle so-and-so who um, you know, you just let's just not keep the, get, let the kids away from him. You know, we always were kind of told that he had some issues with kids or that he touched somebody or that, you know, cousin so-and-so didn't like him. But we kind of swept that under the table and really didn't think about it. And we don't let him babysit, right? But he's at all the family functions, and, and we, don't, we don't keep our kids away from him, per se. Um, we have a lot of those, a lot of those. We have ones that they all know what dad did to the kids, and the kids know, but the kids still bring their grandkids around and say, we just make sure that he doesn't, he's not alone with the kids, right? Or we'll tell the children not to be alone with 
grandpa. Or we tell the children to make sure they lock the door when they sleep the night at grandma and grandpa's house. So it's very interesting, the dynamics behind it, that a lot of it is is known within the family, but they don't want it to come out. They don't want to say what has happened. Um, and so they'll sweep it under the rug until it gets bad enough. Or one of those kids will go to school and say something. Now you have a mandatory reporter involved. Now the police get involved. Um, and, and a lot of times, again, you'll go out to do that first report and the parent will say, well, you know, we always knew Grandpa was a little odd, or we always knew Uncle Chester had that issue, but we just tried to deal with it within the family, or we didn't think we had enough to do anything about. Um, so that's interesting to me, is is just the dynamics of how many families deal with it. Um, we have a lot of uh, sexual abuse with the boyfriend or the stepfather or the, you know, and again, I apologize for, for the men part, but most of them are men, right? Um, I have to say that although there have been some women in the history of time, I have never in my almost six years here had a female sex offender. Um, I know they exist. Um, um, in fact, actually, we have had a couple, though, within our unit. I have heard them, the other detectives talk about a couple, but very, very rare. Um, I mean, you hear about school teachers and, and 15-year-old boys, that kind right. of thing. And, and I don't even think that we've had a case like that here with a female teacher. Um, interestingly enough, we've had a couple of moms who give oral sex to their teenage boys, nah, which isn't appropriate. Um, and we've had a couple of those, but again, familial, not, um, not stranger uh, type uh, sex abuse. Again, not that it doesn't exist. I know it does. Obviously we've seen those teachers and, and actually they've become more prolific, I think, um, or at least we're noticing them more in this generation. Um, but within our unit here, we've had very few of those that I'm aware of. Um, but, you know, the there are a group of people out there who will find the woman who has the children of the age that they like, and then they will become the boyfriend, and then they will move into the house, and then they will begin to prey on those children. And um, unfortunately, a lot of these women don't make good decisions, and they continually don't make good decisions. So the victim that you have at 5 will be a victim again at 7 and 8, and will be a victim again at 10 and 12, um, because she continues to bring boyfriends in that she doesn't monitor or um, pay attention to. So, so walk me through how a sex abuse case works. So the, the, with, with the children where it's very clear, these are broken bones that we see on a scan. The only explanation right. is some kind of crime occurred. What – you know, I, I mean some traumatic sex abuse does leave clear residue, but most don't. Yeah, most has no physical whatsoever. So, you know, you get that occasional case where the mom uh, catches the, the boyfriend or the, the cousin or whoever uh, and brings him immediately into the hospital, and now I have DNA evidence, right? I have spermicide. I have those things. That's Those are great cases for us in the sense that they're easy, right? Look, you have that. It shouldn't have been there, and now I have a, a cut and dry case. Most of the time, that never happens. Most of the time, it's um, been ongoing abuse for years. Uh, eventually, that child speaks at a camp or they go to a teacher that they um, – respect and that they think they're safe talking to and they talk about what happens eventually so we'll walk through one of those cases so we have a child that comes in um and uh so actually we'll talk about a case that i had several years ago and we won't use names but a young lady went to camp and during camp she talked to one of her counselors about the fact that she had been sexually abused by her grandfather um we actually got that phone call because they're mandatory reporters while she was still at camp we got lucky enough that she had no phone or access to her family at camp and so i literally was there when she got off the bus at the high school and we quickly brought her into a room and asked for an interview my partner and i interviewed her and um got more information about cousins that she was was worried also were being abused, that this was pretty prolific by this grandfather within this family. Um, the mother came to pick her up with the uncle, um, and they were very angry with us. Um, they did not want us to speak to this child. They um, would they they were very, very angry with us, and we kind of went through the process of 
the understanding that they needed now to protect this child. They had to bring this child in for interview. They needed to to keep the child away from the grandfather. This was going to be whether they wanted it or not. This was now open. And this was a mother who might have been abused herself from this father? She actually was not. It was her father-in-law, but it was a known deal within the family. So I went and began investigating with the other grandkids. We went to the schools and talked to these grandkids outside of of mom and dad, um, which is legal here in in Oregon. I know some people have a problem with that, but eventually we have six granddaughters, um, all who have been sexually abused by this grandfather. Um, So now we start talking to parents as well. And of course, as soon as the child has, has disclosed, we call their parents to let them know. We get them involved with CARES, we get them involved to the counseling, all of that process starts, DHS, all that process starts. And then, of course, there's the safety plan immediately with that grandfather because he had grandkids living with him. Um, So we removed those grandkids immediately. Um, As we go through the process, we find out that this grandfather had, in fact, abused most of his own children, um, that those children all knew, right, but still brought their children to the house because it was a very close family, and so they had family functions. They still did these things. The granddaughters that were living within the home um, were uh, basically told, you will stay away from grandpa. You will lock your door at night. You will not go be alone with him. And when things happened and the granddaughters came forward and said, grandpa did this, the response was, I told you not to be alone with him. So whose fault is it now, right? These children are raised with the fact that it's their fault if they get abused by grandpa because they were told to stay away from grandpa. So, um, so we continue this investigation and find out that this has been going on for years and years and years. Um, uh, and we get eight victims by the time we're done. Um, he is doing around 80 years, I think he's doing. so. And what is that, when you're talking to him, when you're talking to one of these abusers, what, what, what's that like? You know, it's actually very interesting. Um, most of them are willing to talk, which is surprising, right? When I first came into this job, I thought, we don't have DNA evidence. All I have is a kid saying what happened. Why are these guys even going to talk to me? Um, but amazingly enough, they usually do. Um, most of them want to explain to you why they did what they did. They want you to um, sympathize with them or understand. You know, there's different emotions for me as an investigator as I do these. Some of these guys are predatory, sadistic, horrible people, and, and, and you you really like to go across the table and have words, right? <laughs> um, and that's obviously not acceptable. Some of them are people that... Um, Uh, especially when you get them when they're younger, you know, they say to you, I don't know how to handle this. It's something that I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to do anything else. I've asked people for help. But how do you ask for help for something like this without everybody ostracizing you and now no longer having conversation, right? Um, And so it's it's an interesting um, dynamic between the, the two, some who never want to get caught and they want to do nothing but abuse children and they can justify in their own minds why they want to do it, and some who are sadistic. They like the pain factor of the children as well as the different things that they do. Um, and then the other side of these people who they really would like to stop, they just don't really know how to stop, um, and, uh, and they don't know what to do about it. They don't, that doesn't make them any less bad than the other guy, right? They're both bad. They both need to go to prison because the reality is is most of these people will never be able to control these. Most of the tests have proven there is no treatment for this. Um, that's their fantasy. That doesn't change. Most people have a predilection to what they like sexually, whether it be men, women, adult, whatever, right? This is what these guys have decided and have fed on. They, they You look at child porn. They masturbate to child porn. They masturbate to the images of um, what they want to do to children. And so all that does is continue to feed that. So um, they've found that most of these guys will never never stop doing that. The only way to solve it really is to keep that person away from kids forever. How do you explain this? these family dynamics? That's so It's so painful and, and confusing. How, how do you think about that? 
You know, those I think bother me more than anything because to me, your bad guy's your bad guy, right? You expect him to be the bad guy. But when you have a mother who knows this is going on and doesn't protect her children, to me, that's harder for me personally than the bad guy. I expect the bad guy to be the bad guy. But how can you allow your children, especially because many times those mothers are victims, right? How do they allow their children with these people knowing that this may be what's going to happen? How do they put their own... Like, for instance, with the boyfriend, so many times they put their own desires before the desires. They know these boyfriends have issues. They know these boyfriends are looking at their their prepubescent daughter not the way they should. They know they found him in bed with him once or twice, and they, they swore nothing happened, but that's really odd. And yet they don't kick that boyfriend out. And that's when they start putting their own desires before the, the needs of their children. And that bothers me more, interestingly enough, I think, than the interview with the bad guy, right? Um, because they're your kids. How can you not protect your kids? And the dynamics of it sometimes is... Is, um, uh, they've grown up with it for so long, I think, that it's just, it, it just is what it is. And, and some people, I think, don't know um, where do you go from there, right? What would the response be? How would you go to the police? How does this happen? And, and now look at one of these kids that we take through this. Most of our cases plea because the, nobody wants to go on the stand and tell what they did to these little kids, right? And they don't want me to get up there and tell what they said to me. So most of them plea out. Um, but... Um, on the flip side, you as a parent, do you want your child to have to stand on the stand and tell what happened to them in front of a jury and people and the bad guy and all that? I mean, that's that's really hard on these kids. And so sometimes the parents think, I'm just going to keep that kid away from bad guy from now on, um, or I'm going to monitor that really closely, right, so if it's a family member. But I'm not going to put my kid through the process of having to go through that. And there's lots of back and forth of what's really worse on the child. Is it really worse to go through the court proceedings of having to deal with that but getting justification to say I was right and he shouldn't have done that to me? Or uh, is it better to just try to get – try to just push it aside, right, and, and live with it. And, and I don't always know the answer to that because it, it can be really hard on both pieces. This episode of Working is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash working. With some of the victims, do you, do you stay in touch? Do you know their long-term trajectories? Yeah, some of them I do. Um, you know, there's those families that you just get so involved with because these cases sometimes take months and months. And when your child has been violated, especially, and this is less with the familial ones that allow it to happen as those that find out about it and immediately do something, right? Um I may make an arrest and um, and do my piece of the case, and it's done in a month, but it could be a year before that goes to trial or somebody pleads to whatever they plead to. So um, it's constant phone calls to these families to say, I know you got a court date. We're not going to go. I'm sorry. Let's talk about how we're going to handle that. Let's talk about going through this and what's next. And just continually walking them through and letting them know that we haven't done away with their case. It's going to happen. They're important. We we know they're important. Um, <clears throat> making sure that they are connected with all the services of counseling for those children. Counseling for the parents, a lot of times, parenting classes, if that's what's necessary. All these different things that we make sure that they are involved in. And some of them you get pretty close to. So, you know, you get the graduation announcements and you get um, some of these different things as these kids grow up. So some of them I've followed actually for quite a while. Um, and, and most of those ones that I follow 
our parents that cared a lot to begin with. This is something that happened that um, they know was wrong. They did what they needed to do to get these kids healthy, and now um, they're keeping these kids healthy. They're keeping them in counseling. They're keeping all of these things in place so that they'll grow up and be good good parents themselves, but just, just healthy adults. Yeah, um, and, and I'd imagine, I mean, for everyone, these are things that will be challenges for the rest of their life, but I, I would assume there's a wide range of outcomes. That yes. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a big piece of it is, is how does home deal with it, right? Did they follow through with the counseling and all the things and, and, and made sure this child had every opportunity to be healthy, or did they sweep it under the rug and I don't want to talk about it anymore and we're not going to talk it anymore? But I think even the bigger piece is, and then they kept them safe from there on. We talk about the boyfriend issue, right? So many of these kids you're going to see again because they have boyfriend number one and they have boyfriend number three and they have boyfriend, you know, I mean, and they, they move all the time and they're not in the same school districts and things um, uh, are always moving for them. It's harder, I think, to to keep them safe when the people around them continually bring people into their lives that aren't safe. And. I'm guessing economic issues are a major part of this bad parenting for the parents. I mean, the, the, all of society's ills come come into what you're dealing with. Oh, absolutely. And that's the big piece is you look at most of these cases. So here's my story. When I first started in this unit, the very first CARES eval that we went to, which is where we go in and we listen to the child talk about what has happened to the child. And so how that works is there's an interviewer that interviews the kids, and we're behind a one-way glass so we can watch, but we're not actually in there, but we can watch the interview. And so the very first one that I went to was with a little girl who happened to be the same age as my daughter at the time. And I'm listening to her talk about what has happened to her. <clears throat> and her her education level is already not what it should be for the age she is. Her speech level is not what it should be for the age she is. So you can see all of the detriments already that are within that household, right? The parents um, aren't educated. They're not making sure she's going to school. They're not making sure that um, uh, she's having the opportunity to learn. There's a lot of, you know, plugging on the TV and that's how they do stuff. So you can see the the detriment just in the lifestyle already the child has been brought into, right? And then you see... Um, the the piece of the parents not knowing how to parent, right? Not knowing how to make sure your kid is safe, not knowing how to keep them away from the bad guys, not knowing how to um, to deal with frustration themselves with the way they shield children, all these things. And so I'm listening to this child talk about all this stuff. And um, when we get done and the child leaves, I looked at my partner who had come with me. Um, he was my new partner because the first one I'd been to. And I looked at him and I said, I am the best parent that I've ever known <laughs> because my kid doesn't do any of those and I don't do those things to my kid and it's great. <laughs> so I said the positive of this job is you're going to walk in and go, look, I do a really good job because I'm not that, right? <laughs> um, which is not a positive really, I guess, in the totality. But you, Right. You don't want to set so low a bar. Right, yeah, you don't want to set so low a bar. But, but you, you look at, unfortunately, with most of our victims, they aren't kids that come from well-adjusted families to begin with, right? They have all of these other issues, and then this gets put on top of that. And, and that's the sad piece, really, is if we could just figure out a way to make the family dynamic better, then I think a lot of the other abuses would go away, right? They would solve themselves. Um, but you have to start with decent parenting, and we don't start with that most of the time. Have there ever been abusive parents or sexually abusive folks who you did have sympathy for, who you could find yourself even liking? So the physical abuse parents, I can have sympathy for those. I've had those shaken babies where it's the new dad who's 18, 19 years old, and this baby just won't quit crying, and he doesn't understand, and he doesn't know why, and he shakes that baby one time and goes, holy crap, right? And he sees the reaction of what has happened to the child that he shakes, and he immediately gets that help for that kid because he's horrified by what he's done. Um, I, I feel that. I, I, can, I can feel for that guy because he's not a bad parent, and he didn't go into that room with the intent to hurt his child. Um, he just doesn't know how to handle 
this baby crying and he doesn't and he wants to be a good parent and and again we go back to that we want to we want to make it better we want to make our children happy and so when they keep crying and you can't stop that sometimes the frustration level takes over the the common sense of of the right thing level right and those parents i feel for because i know that so many times um, given the opportunity, they would never do that again, maybe, right? Um, or given, had they had the opportunity to have some parenting classes and some some um, help, right? Maybe they have a grandparent that could come in and help. Just somebody that can be there, too. And so many of them are single parents or they're, you know, the wife's working and that's why he has the baby right now or vice versa. Um, you feel for them. Right. I guess with the, I mean, it's obviously, there's no one in our society for whom we have less sympathy than a sexual abuser of children. I mean, that's probably the single most hated and and rightfully so. But but it it just occurs to me that I would guess many of them were the child victims at an early – and so that in a sense the child victim who you're caring for, some of them may become – Although statistically that's not true. Oh, really? Yeah. So statistically, they have learned that although – so initially what they would do is they would talk to the sex offender, and the sex offender says, well, yeah, I was abused as a kid too. So now you chalk that up to, oh, look, 99% of sex offenders were abused as kids. Now put them on a polygraph, and you'll find out that actually like 40% of them were abused as kids. So now you just lost that sympathy vote, right? (laughs) I mean, I certainly lost that sympathy vote right there. Um, And so – and I guess that goes back to – um, you know, you have the alcoholic, you stay away from the bar, right? Um, if you truly believe you're sexually attracted to children, don't become a babysitter. I, I mean, right? And these get, these people, they integrate themselves very specifically into children's areas in order to do what they want. If they truly wanted to control it or truly were tr- truly knew what they were doing was wrong and was trying to do the best thing, they would just make sure that those opportunities didn't come. Um, that's where I, I, I lose my sympathy. When you became the Boy Scout leader, uh, you did that for a reason. When you became the, you know, you went on one of these child care sites and became a child care provider, you did that for a reason. Um, and people like Jerry Sandusky, the um, coach who, I mean, it seems he pretty much organized his entire life around yeah. cultivating and abusing a very, you know, mm-hmm. studying their parents so he could get the ones who wouldn't have parents who would follow up. Is do you see those people, the, like basically, what, what do you call them, professional abusers? Predatory abusers. And, and yes, that's what they do. They learn how to groom these kids very specifically. They, and, and it's very interesting to me, the parenting piece, because they do exactly that. They become the coach or the assistant coach or a lot of times just the neighbor, right? So I look at the parents across the street who I know are overworked. I know they are frustrated with their children. I know the, ki- the kids probably are not getting the attention that they want or deserve, right? And, and so what am I going to do? You know, I can see how tired you are, and I can see that financially it's really hard for you to pay for childcare. Why don't you let them come home after school to my house? I'd be happy to take care of them, right? I have the video games. I have all the stuff for them to do. We'll take them to the, to, you know, out to go bike riding. They'll have a much better, it'll be right across the street, right? Why don't you go ahead and let me take care of those kids for you? And so they prey on the parents' um, vulnerabilities, right? And they also prey on those children's vulnerabilities because y- you rarely see that kid that is well-adjusted and outspoken and um, all of those things become the victim because that's the kid that's going to go home and talk. That's the kid that's going to go to school and talk. It's the kid that nobody else or in his mind nobody loves, right? He doesn't get the attention. He's left at home after school by himself or he he's told, go watch TV, I'm busy, or the parents are never home. There's your perfect victim because now I'm going to buy you ice cream and I'm going to get you the latest video game and I'm going to spend time with you and I'm going to tell you how much I love you and I'm going to hug you and I'm going to give you that physical attention that you also don't get at home. Now it's going to lead into things that you didn't, that those children don't want. 
but it's easier to lead into now because he's preyed on on their needs. He's preyed on on their wants and desires of just having a parent figure and someone to love them and someone to give them attention and time. And so they pick out their people, their victims, very well. I mean, they, they really do a good job at it. And if you talk to these guys and you talk to the children, you'll see the grooming process. You'll see that it started with, I got the new video game, why don't you come play? And then you'll see that it started with, you know, I was at the store the other day and I saw this and I knew you would love it, so I went ahead and got that for you. And you'll see that, you know, I saw you're really sad. Do you want a hug? Let me just give you a hug. And so you can watch the grooming that starts from from A that ends up then eventually with sexually abusing these kids. Um, they're patient uh, and they're, they're, uh, they're it's horrible to say, but they're very good at what they do. They are very good at what they do. And um, I did want to ask what it's like being a parent. Uh, before I had a son, I, I was a, one of my I often covered crises, and I always prided myself on being able to cover the war in Iraq, cover the tsunami in Indonesia, cover the earthquake in Haiti, and I've seen some horrible things, lots Mm -hmm. of dead people, dead children. Mm -hmm. And I always prided myself on having a certain professional detachment, which, you know, I I would feel things, but I I was able to do my job. And I haven't done any of that since I have a kid, and I really do genuinely wonder if I could. It might Mm -hmm. just be too hard. How, How do you... I don't know. How does that affect you? Well, so two things. One, I have a great husband who a lot of times reigns me in and says, Erica, calm down. This isn't our kid. They still have to live. You have to let them out of the house. Because <laughs> I think if I could bubble wrap them and keep them at home, I would. Um, uh, so he helps rein me back in. So especially when I have some pretty horrific cases, I'll come home and just do the, they're never allowed out again. I don't care. We can't. They can't, right? Um, we had a case a few years ago where there was a child uh, who went to a public restroom, right? They're in a restaurant. Kid just walks down the hall, goes to the public restroom. There's a guy in there waiting for him. Um, he uh, sexually assaulted the child and then stabbed the child seven times. Um, didn't kill the child, thank God. Um, the dad heard the screaming. They were able to get the child out, and we um, arrested bad guy. Um but I have to tell you that my children did not go to a public restroom without me going in or my husband going in with them for a very long time. And even now, most of the time, Jim will, somebody will go with him or we'll, you know, because we'll, that's hard for me now to even think about because um, you think that's safe, right? Uh, so there's things like that I think that have probably changed my children's lives and mine forever. Uh, but on the flip side, um, I think... I think most of the time I can keep it in perspective because, as we discussed earlier, most of these families are not coming from normal, well-adjusted, already put-together families. These kids and our victims are usually coming from drug-affected and, and other other issues that then fed into them being victims. And obviously my children don't come from that. So a lot of what they experience, my kids have never experienced to begin with. So I can kind of, in my own head, say those aren't going to be my kids, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that... My kid, you know, my children don't have sleepovers. They they don't. My children are welcome to have their friends come to my house to have a sleepover, but they don't go other places because they it, it, it's just not something that happens in my house. Um, and those things changed. I think if my kids were younger, I would have a much harder time. My children are older now. They can talk. They can tell me what happens. They can make good decisions by saying I'm uncomfortable and I don't want to go. Um, and so I see that, which makes it easier. We do all the child deaths in the city of Portland as well, in case you didn't know that. And so um, I don't know if I could do this case or do this job if I still had babies because they're almost all accidental, right? It's usually all accidental. Um, but there are ways that children can accidentally die that I never even thought of. I don't know if I could have put my kid down <laughs> if I still had an infant, right? I'd, I'd go home and say, no crib, no this, no this, no negative, because I'd be worried about them. Um, so I think that would be harder. But most of the time, um, I can see the good I do. I can see the children that I save, the children that I make their life better, even if for a period of time, right? And that all makes it worth 
the fact that my children are never allowed to leave. <laughs> how, how, how did you become a cop? What was that decision like? And then how did you get this this cop specialty? Okay, so um, my father's a police officer, so obviously uh, I grew up with it. Uh, my brother is also an officer, so therefore um, we got into it that way. So my brother went to take the test, and um, I was finishing up college and admittedly couldn't afford law school because I had intended to become a lawyer. And um, my brother said, hey, I'm going to go take the test. Why don't you come with me? And I said, all right. Well, I passed. <laughs> and here I am, right? That was twenty, almost 21 years ago. And um, and when I got into it, I thought, well, I'll become an officer, but I'll go to law school once I finish probation, right? And I'll be able to go to school while I'm doing this. Um, and I loved this job and said, why would I sit behind a desk all day, right? I get to go out and drive fast and have a different day every day, um, and I, I love that. So um, so I really enjoyed my job. Um, at, at, at some point, um, street work becomes harder as you get older, and it's harder to chase bad guys because you're older. And and, um, and, I, and in street work, you rarely get to finish the case, right? So you you get to you get to take those children into protective custody, make sure they're okay, but you never know what happens to those kids. And so um, it was easy decision for me to, to take the promotional exam and become a detective because um, to me, that's I, I like the whole brain part of it, right? Figuring out what happened and the who done it and whatever. I went through um, many different things. I've been through assault and homicide and sex crimes, um, and I did all of those uh, initially when I became a detective. And although they're all good, case, they're good crimes to solve, and there's some really decent victims. There is no better, and this doesn't sound right, but there's no better victim than a child. That child, no matter what they did, didn't deserve what you gave to that child. They, they don't deserve to be shaken. They don't deserve to be broken. They don't deserve to be abused. It doesn't matter what they did, right? I don't care if they cried all night. They still didn't deserve what you gave them. Sometimes with assault cases, you go, well, you know, if you'd said that to me, I probably would have hit you too. I mean, <laughs> so the the sympathy for your victim sometimes is not always as great, right? Um but with children cases, you can always feel good about going in and doing those cases because you always have a very clear bad guy and a very clear innocent victim. And I, I hope that some of the changes that we make with these kids when they're young make them not my adult um, suspects someday, right? And so I, I like that piece. I like the fact that we get in young enough that maybe we can actually make a difference in their lives instead of just kind of cleaning up that day. Thank you for listening to Working. I'm Adam Davidson. I write the On Money column at the New York Times Magazine, and I'm also the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money. I'd like to thank the fabulous Slate team for producing this podcast. Alexis Diao did the actual producing. Joel Meyer did the managing producing, and Andy Bowers is the executive producer. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman, host of the podcast, The Moment. This week on the show, the great Tim Ferriss, best-selling author and speaker, on uh, what was the worst year of his life so far. Tim had a health crisis, and he speaks with openness and candor about how he got through it, what he learned about himself, and what we all need to know to protect ourselves in similar circumstances. So please listen in this week to The Moment.